Hey everybody, it's Mike from Phil Krause Bible. Hey, this is another uh, Walk with Mike podcast, except I'm driving in a car right now. I actually just came back from uh, Oregon and Washington, met up with some really good people. Uh, Rome America, it's a R-O-A-M, Erica. Um, if you guys are interested in doing any kind of overlanding or getting into it, never done it before, uh, do yourself a favor and book a trip with these guys. RomeAmerica.com, these guys got a... Uh, uh, a fleet of vehicles prepared for overlanding. They even give you sleeping bags. They give you everything that you need. You fly into Portland, Oregon, uh, pick up your overland vehicle, and you can go on a six-day trip uh, and get the whole overland experience. We're actually thinking about uh, loaning them the Philcraft Taco uh, to be able to be rented there. Also, in addition to that, offer training for everybody who's interested in uh, attending uh, to learn a little bit about survival, a little bit about first aid, get some exposure to it and get more into it. Um, you know, I also had the opportunity to meet up with CAGWorks. CAGWorks is K-A-G-W-E-R-K-S. Met up with Garrett and James, really good people, uh, both of them veterans, uh, doing great things out in Washington. Um, we're talking about doing a collab together, which would be really awesome. Um, working through that right now, some more to follow. Uh, in addition to that, we got to meet up with Rally Sports Group, uh, a guy by the name of Brian, um, real good dude who, you know, suffering from his own misfortunes, didn't allow that to, uh, you know, keep him down. He actually stood up that sports rally group and helps um, disabled veterans, disabled people, you know, that are that are wanting to get outdoors and recreation. Uh, performance athletes. I got the opportunity to uh, eat dinner with one of his athletes and his wife. A really, really cool thing they have going on. They're filing for a 501c3 and just uh, more to follow because I think it's going to be a really uh, cool opportunity to train people with disabilities, very dif- disabilities, and work through tactical, med, uh, survival, preparedness, all that good stuff because, you know, just because you're in a wheelchair, just because you have a disability doesn't mean you shouldn't be given the opportunity to defend yourself, protect yourself, uh, you know, be more prepared for you and your family. So, yeah, more to follow on that. Also have the opportunity to hang out with Foster Huntington, did a podcast with him, which will be up soon. Foster's actually the guy who started the whole van life movement. Like it or not, you know, the hashtag van life wasn't a thing 10 years ago um, because he started that. He basically got in a van uh, after he quit his corporate job, decided to uh, travel the United States um, and uh, did this for years and then documented the experience online uh, on social media it became a really popular thing now I think the hashtag is sitting at about 4.2 million hashtags so yeah I got, got to meet up with uh, some really cool people doing really cool stuff and just amazed by the hospitality um, the scenery the epicness of that portion of the country and stoked to, uh, to get back to it. You know, hey, every once in a while I want to do these podcasts because uh, these podcasts are more informal. It's about uh, communicating to you guys direct. I'm not in the studio. I don't have a guest. It's about getting things off my chest and things that I've experienced uh, over the last, you know, since the last time really we talked. Kind of some perspective-based stuff. But also talking about preparedness. And, you know, this in this particular podcast, I want to talk about bugging out because I got asked some interesting questions because of the Go Rig Challenge one. And you know, when you look at the Go Rig Challenge, which was a opportunity for me to assess whether it was feasible to, you know, jump in my rig with no support, no gas stations, nothing, just move out and continue to move to a safe site, which in this case was moving from Arizona to Canada. Um, it flushed out a lot of cool stuff. If you haven't listened to that podcast, uh, I encourage you to. It's uh, the Go Rig Challenge podcast, which is a few before this one. Um, you know, I, I'm i trying to be optimistic about the country's future and where the direction that we're headed. Um, I'm really big about analyzing uh, information and then assessing. It's kind of my background, right, in special operations uh, you have something called operation, operational preparation of the environment or uh, AFO, 
which is uh, advanced forward operations, where your entire responsibility is to kind of lay out the groundwork, uh, uh, lay out the ground truth and establishing uh, how you're going to operate in that environment, utilizing information. You know, information comes from various sources. It comes from human intelligence. It comes from uh, technical intelligence. Um, there's so many ways to collect that data and that information. One of the issues that we have today is that it's very easy to manipulate data. In fact, if you guys have saw, saw the post, I think we did it last week, um, maybe earlier in this week, where it was about uh, comparing doctors to ISIS. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a little, it, I mean, it's not a little, it's a lot controversial, right? Because it's, it's, hey, nobody wants to compare uh, apples and oranges and nobody wants to be offended. A lot of people got offended by the post because they're like, this isn't the whole truth. Um, a lot of people got angry, but that's OK. You know, the, the, whole, the overall point is in a snippet of information on social media, if you could bring people together to communicate about issues, which there was some good conversations taking place, then that's a good thing. Um, you know, the, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's on Phil Kraft's survival's page. Uh, it lays out some statistics, which are all from the CDC, for the exception of one or two of them and lays the ground uh, truth of the, the opioid epidemic and how it's affecting people's lives. Look, that, there is no argument. That, I mean, that, that is happening. The, the controversy is how do you fix it? The controversy is who's to blame? Um, and we pointed the fingers at the doctors in this particular case. You know, uh, do I think there's good doctors? Yes, absolutely. Do I think there's bad doctors? 100% there are. Uh, I've experienced personally, I've had, you know, other uh, people... Um, not just from my background, but, uh, you know, various backgrounds experience the same thing. I have friends that are doctors. You know, there is an opioid epidemic um, that has uh, numerous causes and a lot of variables. But the bottom line is a doctor prescribes opioids, literally writes a prescription. So if they're if they're the gateway, right, they're the gateway and understanding what those pills do and and not looking for alternative means or worst case scenario, are getting paid by pharmaceutical companies, then that's a problem. And I'm disappointed uh, at the doctors or the physician's assistants or even the people who don't understand that. When you have an incentive-based uh, industry and trillions of dollars that is uh, organized and incentivized with money um, to push more pills to get paid more, then that's a significant issue. Because Obviously, people's behavior can be can be changed, manipulated, and then people die for it. You're talking about, you know, people try to argue the statistics. Look, the CDC doesn't want to sway uh, one way or the other. They're just reporting the facts. They don't want to hurt their own industry because um, you know, there's a lot of things that they, that they touch. So when they report that 70,000 people in 2017 were, were killed by overdosing, that died from overdosing, and they reported the majority of those. I mean, I think somebody reported like they're like, no, it's only 40 percent. No, that was 2016. Actually, in 2017, it was more than that. But but why would you why would you say, no, it's that's not that's not that's that it doesn't matter because it's 40 percent as opposed to 60 percent. Number one, that's thousands of people's lives that we're talking about. So it's not just people dying in alleyways on methamphetamines and, uh, and crack. In fact, what, what people fail to understand is the epidemics that I'm talking about are the fact that people are just people. And then when they're manipulated by doctors, by uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies, and then they take drugs that manipulate their mind, they don't have any choice. Uh, a lot of people are, are predisposed to addiction. It's genetic um, they, they've proven it's genetic, but also there's a lot of instances where their environment can affect uh, their, their ability to, to cope or deal with uh, that high level of a drug, um, but most people can't. So when you take a drug and it's supposed to make you better, to get better, and it does the complete opposite where you're a middle class or upper middle class or upper class citizen, and the next thing you know, they they stop the prescriptions and you and then you go after the street drugs and they become addicted and it's it's a it's a vicious cycle.
I mean, I, I love my hardcore right brethren who are like, you know, it's just a tool. The, the people who are abusing it are the ones who are wrong. You can't blame the gun. Uh, you got to blame the person. This isn't that case. This is not that case because the, the case is uh, we have clinically tried drugs, opioids, and studied it intensely. There's, there's studies that show that it has addictive properties, that it's, it's very addictive, that they know this is going to grossly affect and manipulate minds. But we do it anyways because there is no alternative. Uh, talking to a, a buddy of mine who's a doctor, there is no alternatives um, outside of holistic medicine, functional medicine, etc., to manage pain. And so it needs to be managed. And so are good doctors doing that? Yes. But does that does that negate the fact there's there's an opioid crisis? Absolutely not. So, yeah, good on you, good docs, for standing up for yourselves. I get it. But I, I really don't give a shit because I'm more concerned about the broken institution. And I'm not I'm not uh, directing. We're not directing or delivering that information to you. If the shoe fits, wear it. It's a it's an industry problem. And so uh, that this in lies the issue society wide that we're dealing with where, you know, there's there's different layers. Right. You have governance policy, you know, how it how it trickles downhill. Right. That whole, you know, snow, one snowflake could start an avalanche. When we look at the state of our country now, we have social media platforms that could that are really left leaning. Right. There's no, you can't argue the fact that every single social media platform that comes out of Silicon Valley is left leaning. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the list goes on and on. Uh, their policies are derived from liberal viewpoints and bias. So when you have that kind of industry as a standard, um, you have a bias against more conservative values, more conservative principles. Look, I'm not this is not a political affiliation argument. I'm not I'm not right wing. I'm not left wing. I'm pretty much down the middle. I'm an independent. Right. And so when I when I argue this point, I'm not coming uh, at it from a political perspective. You have to understand that social media manipulates minds. The the degradation of our society is is many. Uh, it's much. But the fact that people on social media platforms that are that are left leaning can shout down, can mass can destroy the voices on the right um, is putting them at a uh, advantage and creating a disruptive system and society. And the reason I say that is because we're drawing a line in the sand. I mean, it's not hard to see how divisive our country is. It's not hard to see how divided we are. I mean, if you look at uh, here's a good example. Trump. I'm not a fan of Trump but he's the president of the United States. He was elected the president of the United States. So I'm going to support the president of the United States. I might not agree with everything that he does, but I'm going to support him. Democrats used to be against war. They wanted to pull everybody out. Trump says he wants to pull everybody out of Syria and the Democrats lose their mind. Everybody used to be about national security and protecting our nation as a forefront. But Trump says he wants to build a wall now we're we're uh, we have class action lawsuits and entire the entire uh, Democratic Party going against the president and uh, issuing a state of emergency. The, the crazy thing about that is I know, look, I used to manage uh, special operations commands that operated um, in Northcom that operated with a JTTF, the Joint Task Force, that operates on the border of America, the United States, and Mexico. And so I'm privy to intelligence and information prior to me even opening my mouth about the situation on the U.S.-Mexican border. I was privy to a lot of information that most people weren't. I had a top-secret SEI clearance, and that's just me in a nutshell telling you that I saw the, the reality behind the veil. And so I know that 
there is a huge concern because of the valid things that Border Patrol, that the U.S. government, that the military is seeing in bad guys crossing the border and the loss of control of trying to maintain accountability of these people. And on top of that, the smuggling of people across the border, right? Uh, human trafficking, the drug trafficking. And then, you know, you have the, the immigrants who are coming over here for, for valid reasons. But look, I'm not, if, if everybody followed the judicial process and the laws that are in place, then we, we don't have to have this argument. So as an expert in security, I have a degree in crisis management and homeland security. I spent 20 years in the military and special operations doing this for a living. The number eight, eight, a private, an E2 private in the U.S. Army knows that the first number one thing you do in establishing security is focus on your physical perimeter. All right. And, this, and that's the number one rule. So if we don't have a physical perimeter, if we don't have the ability to control as an access point what's coming and going, then you don't even have a leg to stand on. You could use technology, you could use people, you could use whatever you want to use, but it negates uh, the fact that you don't have a physical mechanism in which to control the access of people coming and going. On top of the fact that I, you know, I just recently went uh, with a, uh, to the border with the Philcraft, uh, uh, Team Philcraft, and we did a little mini documentary with Tim Foley, and it is a dire situation. I mean, look, there was like, I saw two border agents with a porous border that had no wall that was completely open that were using technology with problem with uh, with track drones and tr and trying to assess all the people that were coming and going. We walked maybe half a mile and found caches of water, food, etc. And the list goes on. Right. So this is a divisive issue. But you're getting one side, which is the political side from the left that says, this is a everything that you're seeing and reading is fake because they're they're pushing an initiative. Look, you have politicians now that make tens and tens of millions of dollars to be a politician. Imagine if we had a loophole where a military member of special operations could make hundreds of millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars in the service to their country. How would that go down? I couldn't even work a part-time job when I was in the military. And you got these politicians who were becoming millionaires. So what do they do? They spend all this money, all this time, instead of governing our country, developing policies that are going to help and protect us, they divide us because they're, they're ready for the next election. And so they have um, selfish and um, really, you know, out of whack incentives that aren't in line with the original selfless means of service that they were they were obligated to in the first place. So that's a huge problem. So how does that trickle down? Well, one, all the media that you're seeing. Look, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I hate conspiracies. But when you have people in the media who are on the left spending all this fake news, you know, the, 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 one of the greatest things that I think has been spun Holding the holding the media accountable is this biased news that's that's fake, that's manipulating, that gets on social media, goes viral and affects people's minds and behavior. Right. Where they go, you know, I hate the right. I hate those people. I hate Trump and I hate everybody affiliated with it, forgetting that half of our country backed President Trump. And so as a country, we're in a real bad situation where we're really divided. Where does this lead us? Look, this you don't have to be um, a, a special operations guy who's used to analyzing and assessing information to, to realize that this could easily for us turn into a civil war. This could very easily turn into a situation where you have you, you already have it right. You have, you know, uh, right wing, right, more more controversial conservatives going out and doing speaking engagements. When they go there, they're shouted down. They don't even have the right uh, or capability or ability anymore to be able to speak because they're getting shouted down. And so now the left, 
who advocates for First Amendment rights, for freedom of speech, has a tactic in order to shout down the right. So now nobody could voice their opinion. And you have organizations like Antifa. You have, uh, um, they have outlets, they have Twitter, they have social media. And now they can get all the people that they have backing them, right? And inspire them to come out of the woodwork. And you have an insurgency of people who are prepared to enact violence. So if you look at it and you assess the intelligence and information, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that we are looking at a very divisive and fragile situation that all all it takes is the right amount of manipulation to, to turn this country upside down. Um, and so what's the solution? The solution is to be better informed and to be better engaged, to stand up and to advocate and for yourself to voice your opinions based in truth. A lot of people don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear that our life expectancy has dropped to 78.6 for the first time in history because of suicides, because of overdosing, that the rates of depression, anxiety, uh, post-traumatic stress are skyrocketing, while at the same time, technology is taking over our jobs, right? In middle-class America, we're, we're grossly affected by the automation of technology integrating into our societies and taking our jobs. You know, I have this, uh, uh, this saying on, uh, on Twitter, it's a hashtag that it says, learn to code. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of people on the left, a lot of people in the media think that it's a viable course of action to take middle class America, which are, you know, the majority of our country who listen to this podcast, who are driving trucks right now, who are in the retail space, who are, are living check to check, who can't afford to pay more than $500 out of their bank account before they get shut down who are dissatisfied with their current job and career path, who are doing their best to survive, that those people are going to somehow drop their jobs, move to Silicon Valley, and learn how to code. It's not going to happen. So what are you going to see? You're going to see an acceleration, which is happening now. Have you been to Walmart? Go to Walmart. How many cash registers are there? How many people are working those cash registers? How many people are managing the automated cash registers that are in there. Start looking around you. You ever uh, YouTube or Google Amazon fulfillment uh, facility? These powerful companies are taking over our society and leaving us human beings um, in a in a really tough spot and situation. Now it's a progressive situation. It's it's the evolution of our society. I get that, right? I, I get it's going to happen. The, the, what I'm fearful of is how technology is manipulating minds, how powerful these social media companies are getting with no accountability, and then, and then how divisive and easily manipulated our society is as a whole. That's scary to me. So you could also pay attention and preparedness and get prepared. Get your ass out of the epicenters, out of the center of the cities, and get more rural. You know, my, my first piece of advice would be if you're in a, a highly populated city, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Phoenix, there is plenty of opportunity to move on the outskirts of your city and get on the uh, rural side of those cities and get away, uh, have, it, have a out in order to escape, evade if anything goes wrong. You know, it starts it starts off with the individual. You have to have to, you have to take individual account, uh, accountability and understand that you have to take uh, a role in self-reliance. Look, the, the first responder community is a great group of men and women doing their best in the event of a mass casualty or a catastrophic event, man-made and natural. Right? There's plenty of data on this. They will be in a dire situation where they will have limited resources, where they will not have the ability to help everybody. You have to understand that the 
first responder response time as I speak is increasing by the second. Over the course of years that I've been teaching this has increased by the minute. So if you look at the national average right now, it's about 15 to 18 minutes, depending on the study that you look at. So 15 to 18 minutes it takes for a first responder to respond to you. The average active shooting takes about 12 minutes, right? If you're in a traumatic event like a car accident uh, and you have a femoral bleed, you could bleed out in minutes. If you have, if you're in a situation where you're caught in a bad place, look, uh, Milo, uh, Milo went to Berkeley. I actually had friends who were on his protective service uh, detail that were his bodyguards. That went crazy really fast. Uh, Antifa showed up. They started violently protesting. The fights broke out and they tried to break in to the event. They shut him down. He had to evade. They were burning cars. They were smashing windows and it got really bad. Imagine that's a situation in the middle of a city where people who are conservative come out of the woodwork to fight and defend themselves. People on the left come out. Uh, more extreme violence breaks out and ensues. And you're in your apartment, you're in your house with your family. What do you do? Let's talk about the tangible things that you're going to do. All right. So number one, you're going to prepare as an individual. It starts with yourself. You need to exercise your right and exercise the Second Amendment and carry within the confines of the laws of this, of the state and a federal government, depending on where you are, depending on how you operate a role, you have to do what you have to do to protect yourself and your family. When I lived in Northern California, I was stagnated by a whole bunch of laws. The, the, the sheriff of my county openly and vocally said he would not enforce any of the laws on the California books because he thought it went against the Second Amendment right for people to bear arms and defend themselves. And so I carry concealed every single place I went. Now, if I was in San Francisco, I could go to prison. If I was in uh, my county, uh, I, I had a good chance of ne not even being confronted by law enforcement. You have to do what you have to do. That starts with responsible ownership. I don't, I don't mean necessarily every, following every single stipulation. Do you think if I walk up to a door and I'm going into a restaurant with my family and I see a sticker that says no guns allowed, that I'm not going to carry my gun in that restaurant? To each their own, I recommend you do what you have to do to defend your family. What I mean is the responsibility in safety and in practice. In safety, you need to know how to manipulate that gun and you need to teach everybody who touches or is around that gun. Your children, your wife, your family and friends. Because if they, if your kids come across that firearm and they, and they don't understand the lethality that it's capable of, you're putting them in a bad situation. Number two, you have a responsibility to carry that gun loaded and understand exactly how to operate and function that gun to defend yourself. That doesn't mean going to a flat range in a cubicle and, and notching out an X uh, at your favorite local range. You know, I, I coined this term called cubicle shooting, where people love to show up at these ranges that have bowling alley lanes. And they, they put down their table in front of them. They stack their 50-round bricks of ammunition. And they go to work, and they notch up that X. They don't exercise or inoculate stress. They shoot, slow, aim, fire. The difference between that and reality is when you're training to defend your life, you have time, you have time, right? And you have accuracy fighting against you. So you don't have the opportunity to slow aim fire in that instance. You don't have that opportunity to operate without stress. I wish it was that easy. So you have to train under stress. You have to exercise those fundamentals in alternate positions. And you have to be prepared to move while you're operating that at the same time. You know, I have, I'm looking forward to, to training this weekend. This Sunday, I have uh, a Jim Miller, a UFC fighter coming, Darren, my buddy coming, and I'm running a, a gunfighter carbine course. And we run and gun because we train working off 
the fundamentals under stress while moving because movement is what's going to save your ass. So don't fall in love with notching out the X. Be more interested in the gunfighting application and understanding your capabilities. If, if you don't understand your capabilities and the first time that you draw your gun fighting for your life um, in that instance is, is the first time that you've done it for real, you are in a very bad situation. Second, med, trauma, first aid. You are more likely to treat trauma in your lifetime than being in a gunfight. More likely to treat trauma and treat uh, uh, somebody who's in your family, your friends, or somebody on the streets or yourself than you are to get in a gunfight. Millions and millions of accidents happen every year. I always, I always quote the, the awesome statistic as a hunter that 6,000 people fall out of damn tree stands every year. So if you don't know how to treat yourself and treat your family, you are compromising your survivability and your life and your family's life. It's the start point is stopping the bleed. The start point is stopping the bleed. That means having a tourniquet. We sell combat application tourniquets from North American Rescue, the Gen 7, on our website. It is $29.99. It cost me 22 bucks. I'm telling you my margin because I don't make a, money, a lot of money off of it. Because for me, it's not, not about money. If you had to buy one piece of equipment, that is the one piece of equipment that I recommend you buy. I also recommend that you buy an inside the waistband tourniquet holster. We have the tourniquet holsters online in order to carry that tourniquet where you can carry it next to your gun, appendix carry, which means off center, off your belt line, in order to carry it comfortably and routinely. Most people who carry things don't like to carry things because it's uncomfortable. I actually have made a lot of conscious decisions in not wanting to carry stuff because it just doesn't feel, feel right. Um, we have the low-vis uh, holsters that I made as a contractor. They're real simple, real easy to use, and they're comfortable. If I have a big, you know, huge, uh, you know, inside the waistband holster that just rubs against me, I can't sit down, I can't operate, I don't want to carry it. So get something that's comfortable and carry it. Something else that we have is uh, the modular visor panel. When you're driving in your vehicle, we look at your vehicle as an extension of your rucksack and your capability. Before, before I digress, let me, let me go back to uh, the, your individual person. Look, you need to carry a blade. A blade's carried for utility, but it's your backup when you don't have a gun or you don't have access to your gun. There's a lot of considerations in that. Saturday, tomorrow, or, uh, um, uh, Saturday morning, Jim Miller is going to be in the house. Raul Martinez, our combatant instructor, is going to be teaching. Darren will be there. Um, they'll be teaching close proximity fundamentals. I'll have that up for the tribe on the uh, live on Facebook. Um, there's a lot of considerations when carrying a knife. You have to know how to operate with that in utility and in defending yourself. Also, you need to have a light source. I run an independent light source. Look, I'm not going to carry a light in the middle of the day. I carry it inside my car. When nighttime hits, I stick it in my pocket. And I want it to run independent of my gun because the utility is, is more likely to be utilized than actually using it on my gun. And I don't want to pull my gun to check the bottom of my car or to check um, something that I hear. I want to use it independently, but there's an advantage to that. Uh, there's training out there to, to uh, flush that out. Also, um, I use an RFID holder or wallet in order to protect the chips on my cards and my information. A lot of technology out there has the ability to strip that data with one scan. Um, so I use an RFID wallet. There's, there's plenty of manufacturers out there uh, in order uh, to protect my, my information. Your, your mobility platform, your GoRig platform, is the extension of your individual capability. I always use the expression, if I'm carrying a tourniquet, I want my vehicle to have, hell, I want my vehicle to be a, an ambulance. I want it to have the upgrade to that situation. That, that extension of your rucksack is a, an extension of your individual capability. We have that modular visor panel that we came out with. Look, I'm not, I'm not under the impression um, or a, a disillusion that 
you guys are going to be turning that visor into a chest rig and running and gunning. That's not the point. The point is you need to be able to reach and touch your trauma kit with one hand in order to treat the trauma on your body when you're in a traumatic experience. If you're in a vehicle accident, you think you're going to have the the ability to run to the back of your trunk and pull out your aid bag? You're not. So you need to have uh, an arm's reach access to be able to operate. So make sure you have a med kit. The modular visor panel has a rip away uh, basic hemorrhaging kit that we uh, sell loaded or unloaded so you can use your own uh, kit and set up. But we also have a tourniquet that you can utilize as well. You can put that on your go rig go bag. We have a go rig go bag that goes on the back of the passenger seat. So you can reach back and grab that kit. But also carry your survival med and blow out with a go bag if you have to because it's a panel that turns and converts into a go bag. On top of that, you need to carry recovery equipment. Look, recovery is important, but in that recovery equipment, you need flares, you need an additional light source, you need spare batteries, you need a three-day supply of food, you need water or the ability to contain water and the ability to sanitize that water, and you could fit all this into a go bag. We have these little three-day assault packs. Everything that I have is in the back of my car in recovery and contingencies that gives me the peace of mind that I need to operate. That's 100% critical. And, and not just addressing a man-made catastrophe, which is the worst case scenario and the things that I'm talking about, but we're also talking about being prepared for, for things that you just run into. I mean, dude, dude I've, drove, I've driven through three winter storms, major winter storms where cars were flipped into ditches. You know, coming across a guy who rolled off into a ditch when a state trooper just rolled up and he walks up the berm in a shirt and, and, uh, and shorts and was literally just in a rollover accident where he got lucky. And he's in the middle of the backcountry of Oregon and has no cell phone reception. And luckily that state trooper just came across him. Um, that stuff happens all the time, especially in rural America, especially, um, in a catastrophe hitting uh, the, the center of a city. So uh, in addition to that, look, survival is our mainstay. Uh, I'm getting back to survival. I tire of spitting en- energy on all these things that, you know, I want to attack and, and operate in this space, but it's taken me away from the core of what I think is important, which is survival. Survival is very important in, in, in the mindset and how you operate. You know, I'm, I'm writing this book on resiliency and it's flushing out a little, a lot of good ideas, um, and refreshing my mind that I've experienced that I've taken for granted. You know, resiliency is that foundation, that layer that kind of stacks on itself that allows you to bounce back when you're confronted with something difficult. It's like going out for the first time and you go on a hike. And when you go on the hike, you didn't bring enough water because you carried uh, one bottle of water and you think it, it didn't think it would be that difficult and you didn't bring food. Well, then you go on that walk or that hike and you come back and you're like, wow, you know, I was exhausted. I was dehydrated and it was difficult. So the next time you come back better prepared. Well, survival uh, and planning for the worst case scenario allows you to be prepared no matter what. I say, you know, if you plan for the worst case, then everything in between the best case and the worst case is addressed. So when you're, you know, routinely uncomfortable, at least you have something there. And that's very important in addressing uh, the facilitation of your mindset. Because if you have that, you're confident. And confident leads to positive outcomes. So many people fail to survive or further complicate a bad situation because of their self-esteem. You know, when you're, when you're going through life and you, and you have a really shitty, self, shitty self-esteem, you know, you don't, nothing gets better. You don't look yourself in the mirror and go, you know, I'm a shit bag. And then you have a great day and you come back home and, you know, you feel accomplished. That's not how it works. When you start to beat yourself up confidence wise, everything falls apart. Your sleep, your relationships, your, your health, your nutrition, everything. So it compounds itself. So I would like to think that if you have the right mindset, to prepare in the first place, to get a survival kit that has the staples of survival in fire, water, shelter, signal, etc., 
then you have the one up on everybody else when it comes to something happening. And that and that's what I want you to think about. Carry that survival kit. Um, you know, our minimalist survival kit, I've talked about this in seminars before. But our uh our minimalist survival kit, let me tell you the story. So no shit there I was. I was a, a government contractor. I had just come back from Yemen, which if you've if you've uh, never heard of Yemen, don't worry about it because it's a shithole in the middle of nowhere that you will never go. Um, it's not a vacation destination. It's just a really uh, crappy place. Some r- deeply rooted culture, uh, which is super interesting, but a really volatile, uh, non-permissive place. So it's it's a place that uh, I came back from and I was happy to get away and the contracting uh, agency that I was working with uh, asked me if I wanted to get a training. And so I can't get into too much detail, but I'll tell you that it was one of the best training courses that I've ever been to. You know, I've been to a lot of survival schools in my military career. I had the fortunate opportunity and operating in different units to go to, to amazing training. And one of those training uh, training opportunities was CRC, which is Survival, Escape, Resist, and Evade, which was all about uh, you know, what happens when you get caught behind enemy lines? What happens when you have to use uh, survival in an evasion situation to fight for your life? And then what happens if you're held captive and the, the things that you go through? Um, I, I had a, a cool story that I talked about um, long ago when I was in SEER school where I thought it was okay to, to piss in my boot. And I had thought to myself, you know, if I just piss in my boot, if I just uh, uh, pee in my boot when I'm locked in this box, I'll be able to go out and pour it out and I won't get beat up for it. You know, they won't pull me out of the cage and notice that I peed everywhere. So I pissed in my boot and then put my foot back in it and forgot about displacement and realized that I had piss everywhere in my bare foot. And so uh, it was a pretty funny situation. Um, so, you know, when I evolved in my special operations career, insurgency, terrorism, counterterrorism was a significant, obviously, thing happening. And so peacetime detention was another course that I went to. What, what happens when you're flying into Pakistan and they think you're a bad guy or they think you're an intelligence officer or they think you're a special operations dude and they pull you into secondary and they interrogate you. And all these different survival schools prepared me for war. But this particular course prepared me to operate in environments where, you know, I was just Joe Blow, nothing special. And then that country, for some reason, fell apart, which if you look at the history of Libya, Yemen, um, you know, Mali, Somalia, really all the Chad, Sudan, all these countries, which, you know, it's funny when President Trump put out the ban, the travel ban on these countries, most of these countries I had operated in and knew how volatile they were because their government were not regulating immigration. And so when they said that they were going to regulate people coming and going, uh, it made total sense. But people were outraged because they're like, you know, we're shutting down these these people. It's like, no, these people um, don't have their shit together in the first place. So. Imagine you're operating in that environment and then all of a sudden something falls apart and you have to get the hell out of Dodge. You know, I've been in I've been in Yemen when the airport is shut down and we have no opportunity to get out of there. And imagine where the airborne the airport shuts down and the uh, opposing force to the sovereign kind of sovereign government that we're supporting says, you know what, we're going to roll up every American that's here, which has happened. It's happened in Libya. It's happened in China in the early days. You know, it it happens often. And that can lead to really shitty outcomes. So when I showed up, what was interesting is, you know, I had a ton of special operations career. I had um, opportunities operating in this environment. And they, they basically gave us a Ziploc bag. And in that bag was a whole bunch of different pieces of kit. And what was really interesting was all the all the instructors were expert survival instructors. I won't tell you who they were from or where what they did, but they were young guys like me 
that had operated in global war on terror that were experts. And they were, they were, they had basically researched and developed all the important things that needed to be in this bag. And this bag was a bag that they gave to us where they said, listen, this is a bag that you can carry on your person, meaning on your individual body, in your pockets, that you could operate. Um, you, you know, you could stick in your bag, you could stick on your in your pockets, and people wouldn't think that it was a military, there was a military objective or it was military equipment because it was all commercial off-the-shelf equipment, which is important, especially when you're in the military and you're operating in a non-permissive or semi-permissive environment. And so what was what was uh, cool was it was all the equipment that you also needed to survive for a 72-hour or a three-day escape and evasion where it would sustain enough life. For example, there was a, a Mylar space blanket. You know, a Mylar space blanket is the size of a wallet, folds up real neatly in your pocket. But when, when crap hit the fan, you could use it to insulate your, your core body temperature. You could build a makeshift shelter. You could uh, use it to deflect heat with a fire. You could use it to signal aircraft with one side being fluorescent orange and the other side being um, like a, a, a foil material or reflective material. It also had a fire starter and a small ferro rod. It had a headlamp. It had a pencil and a, and a uh, right in the rain tablet. It had chlorine dioxide purification tablets and a small baggie that allowed you to carry water, but also purify. And so I remember joking around in this course and looking at the instructors and going, you know what, this is really well thought out. Like, how did you guys come up with this? It's like, oh yeah, you know, with our expertise, we came together and then we figured, hey, what are the best pieces of equipment to survive? And that's what we did. And so I thought to myself, you know, I'm a civilian. I'm a contractor, I'm a civilian. And I was looking at starting a business. I was like, you know what, I'm going to start, I'm going to sell survival kits and I'm going to utilize uh, this minimalist survival kit um, and, and, and market it and brand it to civilians who will be able to utilize this in their vehicles, in their purse, in their center console, in their backpack. And when the worst case scenario happens, be able to live. And I did that. And I even remember telling the guy, I still have the original notes where I wrote it down. I remember telling the guy like, Hey, I'm gonna do this. He goes, yeah, more power to you, man. I, I can't do it. Cause I'm, you know, I'm obligated, but uh, you sure as hell can. And I did that. In fact, the first product that I launched three years ago was that Philcraft Survival Minimalist Kit. And you know how much has changed? Not at all. It hasn't changed at all. Uh, I've changed out uh, the the uh, the tool that's in there, the, the micro tool that's in there to reduce the overall cost. And I've changed the headlamp to reduce the overall cost. But that's about it. Everything else remains the same. Um, so when it comes to survival, that's that's critical. Look. Your your house is the safe home, the safe place. But in order to get to that home, you have to be able to get mobile. On the Go Rig Challenge, we identified that you have to have, as a start point, the fuel capability to get there. I'm a big believer in extended fuel fuel tanks uh, in order to operate. Number one, it's it's super convenient, right? When you have a 75 five gallon tank and you can roll 1,400 miles on one tank of gas, 2,000 miles on one tank of gas. That's super convenient, but also allows you, where you're in a situation where the, you know, oil and gas or infrastructure gets shut down and everybody's fighting for resources where you could easily, easily continue to operate uh, with a fuel consumption you have to get home, to get to a more, more upgraded level of capacity. Right. Because you're, you're looking at your house as the patrol base, as the upgrade of your mobile or extension of your rucksack. And so uh, in addition to fuel, you have to look at the way that you get home, the way that you communicate, the way that you bug out as a consideration in, number one, the vehicle that you're going to utilize uh, how you how, the routes that you take and how you, you communicate to your kids to get to their location. Like for example, if your kid goes to school 
there's a worst case scenario where the infrastructure falls apart. You don't have the ability to communicate to them. They should know. They should know the link up point in which you're going to go and get them when, when things go wrong. You know, if they're an older child, uh, that might be them leaving school and then get doing a link up plan. Um, or if they're a younger child, that might be, Hey, you're getting with the teacher and you're going to go to the, the front of the school so I can pick you up. But you have to coordinate, rehearse and, uh, exercise that plan and, and, and concentrate on that bug out evasion as a part of your life when you're when you're uh when you're looking at your overall uh, uh bugging out or go to hell plan when you're looking at communication understand that the gsm network the cdma network is not going to be there if the electricity and the infrastructure falls apart um if you if you've been in uh, spots like i am now where you know i'm i'm basically in airplane mode where I, I'm in the back roads of Idaho where there's no reception, period. There's a sense of disconnect and uh, lack of uh, security when you're operating without your phone because you don't have the ability to text to relay communication. Well, think about that on your daily commute and your daily routine. What happens right now if you're listening to this and um, your cell phone was incapable of communicating? What would you do? How would you communicate to your loved ones? Where would you go? Um, how would you let people know that you're okay? Those things need to be flushed out. RF, ham radios, handheld, those are very important. Walkie-talkies are super important, super cheap. You can throw them in your backpack. You can have them in the back of your vehicle. They're fun to utilize with your kids, with your family, um, when you're off trail, when you're just messing around. But they're also a viable and useful tool when you don't have those cell phone uh, towers and networks up. You know, somebody was asking me, hey, I live in California, and I have to get through Nevada to get to a safe site. Remember, a safe site is not always just your house. It's not always just your home. It's not just you bugging out of your workplace or your commute and going home and then locking the doors. Because you only have so many days of resources uh, of food, of water, of shelter, of, uh, you know, of med, where you start to lose those resources. And then if you're like many people in California where you don't have the, the ability to fight for yourself because you don't have guns, then how are you going to be able to defend those resources when people are fighting for them, going door to door, fighting for resources? Um, so you have to have something that's detached outside of your epicenter, outside of your safe, complacent bubble to be able to get to and evade to and then have a plan of action in order to get there. For example, let's say your your mom lives in rural Nevada. She has 20 acres. Lives, your parents live there. Uh, you have uh, well water. They have food and, and additional water uh, that they, they keep re- retained. They have you know, the acreage to easily defend their position, you know, they're, you know, like most rural Americans, they're more prepared for to sustain life for a longer period of time. And you decide that you want to get there. Well, let's say that that commutes 500 miles. Well, first of all, you have to consider the fuel resources. So let's say you have a a car because you commute. Well, if you know your fuel tank is 15 gallons, and you can only go so far on that one trip. Well, I advise you to retain at least the amount of fuel it would take inside your house, in your garage, to be able to load up in the back of your car, to be able to supply you on the way with no resources in order to get there. Let's say it's a 1,000 miles, and you don't have the money to get an extended fuel uh, tank, or you don't have the capability. You know, some cars don't have uh, the ability to carry that much, and it's just not viable. What you have to do is create the network, the network that's going to facilitate that movement. So you might have somebody in between you and your your uh, mom and dad's place that's the safe site that you communicate to. And you say, hey, you know, is there any way, I know this sounds, this sounds weird because it always does, can I store fuel 
at your place just in case shit hits the fan uh, where I could st- store an additional backpack, a three-day assault pack of food and water and uh, fuel to be able to cache, to be able to get to my location. You know, I, you know, this is this is what I've learned in special operations, and it might it might seem extreme. The, all, the other alternative is burying it, uh, is hiding it in an actual cache of getting an aluminum lockable sealable container and stowing it somewhere in the middle of the desert with a grid location where you could get to it in the middle of uh, of nowhere to be able to facilitate your movement. That might be super critical to your survival, and it will cost you a couple hundred bucks and a little bit of effort. In addition to that, you have to remember that when the worst case scenario happens, the valuables that you have, the tangible items that you have will become the bartering mechanism in which you will trade in currency to be able to survive. You know, if you go to any undeveloped nation in the world, Afghanistan, Yemen, Niger, Africa, Libya, Africa, all the places that I've been in the world, they operate off of bartering systems because their currency cash flow falls apart every single day where it fluctuates in value and sometimes it completely goes away. But you know what retains itself is silver, is gold. Is the bartering of trade, uh, of items that matter, like containers, like filters, like feud procurement, like survival kits, like things that are going to be useful in a world in which, you know, your, your TV is not, your, your, your cool diamond ring is not. You have to understand that in just preparing for the worst case scenario, You are allotting yourself currency that's valuable now, but will be priceless later. You know, it's awesome uh, to even uh, think about, but I'm excited about the Go Rig Challenge Part 3, or Part 2, actually. Part 3 is already on my mind because uh, I flushed out uh, uh, Part 3 already. But Part 2, I'm going to take a budget KLR 650, right? A couple thousand dollars, which is viable for any human being. I'm going to... Get that vehicle. I'm going to extend its range to the capacity in which it's capable of carrying. And then I'm going to go from uh, Southern California, a Baja, essentially, all the way. I might even do it reverse. I might start from Canada going south. And then when I do that, I'm going to do that movement with no resources, meaning no no uh, infrastructure resources like fuel, gas stations, no hotels. No pit stops. The only thing I'm going to be able to do is utilize the network that I develop on the way. So I'll reach out to my network and I'll say, hey, you know, if I'm coming from British Columbia and I'm trying to go through Washington state and I need to get more fuel, can I barter for fuel? And I'm going to make these field craft coins using a company called Mutiny Metals that are going to be stamped and they have a currency value. And I'm going to trade the, the monetary value of those coins for resources um, uh, that I need in order to make my movement. So I'm going to trade that silver coin or that gold coin for fuel, for food, for water, for additional things that are going to allow me to continue movement to get to my safe site, which is going to be in Baja. Uh, actually, I'll make it um, Fieldcraft HQ, but I'll go through the Pacific Northwest and uh, maintain my, my uh, position on the coast. And so if I break down, I'm going to have to utilize a bartering system in order to help myself. Um, I might even do it utilizing um, a minimal cell phone communication in order to prove the point that if you truly want to sustain survivability, you have to look at a developed network, which is really the, the important um element where I want you to understand why I started the tribe. You know, recently I got, uh, we call it my pee spanked a little bit, uh, by the tribe because, you know, I hadn't been posting a lot of content on there and, you know, being task saturated as I am, which is not an excuse. Um, I need that 
you know, reevaluation or, or I'm glad the tribe is like a family to me because I need them to step up and be like, Hey man, you know, we need to get more information, more content, more by you. Um, and you know, we're doing that now, but the tribe to me is a family because it's a group of like-minded, you know, you, you buy into the tribe. It's $300 for an annual membership. You get uh, invited into the Facebook private page. Uh, we're going to start releasing the newsletter. But it's an important um, element to our overall survival. I'm going to start communicating to them more, and I'm going to start working with a, a map software company to be able to get people pinned on a map to allocate their individual resources and what they're capable of containing and, and, and housing. If I have somebody in the middle of nowhere, if I have somebody in the middle of the no, in nowhere who has a hundred acre ranch, who has an underground bunker and he's up to it, he can communicate that to the rest of the tribe. So people know that in that network, that if something happened, they can go to him as a safe, safe house and a safe site, but it's bartering, right? So, so other people have to bring more value in order to operate like that. And so the continued value is you're developing a network in which people can live uh, and sustain survivability for a long duration, offering people the, 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 that state of mind. Um, I even want to do an app. I don't have the money now, but I want to do an app that allows you to see where people are located to be able to directly communicate to them via satellite. Not the GSM network, but satellite in order um, to communicate to people in that uh, when, when, when things are going wrong, when things are going bad. So, you know, I was long winded on that. I'm sorry. I apologize, but I'm, I'm super, super motivated by, um, you know, educating people and understanding what it really takes to survive and live. And this isn't paranoia. This isn't I'm not I'm not an extremist. I'm a realist. And living in reality, understanding kind of the the variations or the different types uh, in the in the countries that I operate in, the different types of worst case scenarios as they have gone downhill and really regressed into counterterrorism uh, situations uh, where they're, they're they're completely controlled by militias, um, completely off grid. Reduced resources. I mean, dude, look at look at Libya. That place was uh, an economic powerhouse that that was really a a really good country to visit a long time ago, uh, even in uh, in tourism. Now it's been blasted back in the Stone Age, and everybody's fighting for survival. Our our individual country could 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 be in that situation in about ten steps. You know, ten. Bold steps, we could be back uh, in a situation where we are fighting for resources, fighting for our survival. So it's only a matter of time, according to a lot of experts. Um, I, I'm one to agree with a, you know, even with an optimistic view view of it, that if you look at the direction we're headed, we are headed to something that's going to be very bad, and that that is going to at some point. Um, pop the bubble. We can only go on for so long um, before things completely fall apart. Uh, in a nutshell, it's up to you to be prepared for this. It's up to you to uh, take the time, uh, you know, seek the education. You know, we have plenty of resources for it. You know, PhilCraftSurvival.com, PhilCraft Mobility. You know, I got JT coming. He's going he's gonna to stand up uh, the gym for us. On the survival fit side, uh, it will be free to tribe members, open to, to the public, um, and teaching you guys physical fitness and nutrition. Uh, but we're trying to cover the full spectrum because it's important. If I was allotted that information free for the U.S. government that, that allowed me to be better at my job and surviving in so many different ways, then so should you. You should have that access to that information uh, you should be given the resources and the choice to be prepared or to not. And so uh, thanks for tuning in. This guy's man. I know it's an informal podcast. It's, uh, at some point, it's probably hard to hear because I'm speaking on uh, on the road. 
Um, but um, I'm glad you guys tuned in and uh, appreciate what you guys do for us. Uh, yeah, thanks, guys. That's all I got. Till next time, stay alert, stay alive. <laughs>